has seen sinners prosper and he's seen them flourish. But in the end, they're destroyed and they lose everything. Now, this wasn't a very compassionate description of, of Job's situation. It must have really hurt Job a lot to hear his friends say, basically, Job, your children were killed because of your sin. Can you imagine? The problem with basing your reasoning on what somebody else says is that we don't see everything. And besides that, we can't see what's going on in a person's heart, like God can. And so we can't determine who's righteous in God's sight. Let's begin now in chapter 5 with verse 1 as Eliphaz begins his second argument with Job. And he says, call out now, is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? So Eliphaz says to Job, Job, cry out for help. But is anybody going to answer you? Which one of the angels are going to help you? And in Eliphaz's mind, he thinks that if you're condemned, you can't get any help from anybody. And he's basically telling Job, this is the situation you're in, Job. Because it looks like Job is beyond help. He has no help from man, and he's not going to get any help from heaven. No man can deliver you, Job, from your troubles. Your problems are too big, and they're beyond man's help. And many of God's people, many of you, if not all, know what that's like. You experience a situation in life where the only way you can look for help is up. Because there's no one on earth that can possibly help you. And Eliphaz says to Job, to which of the holy ones will you turn? Now holy ones speak of angels. The wicked have lost all human help. And they're not going to get any help from heaven as well. Eliphaz is basically telling Job, no one on earth can help you. And no one in heaven will help you either. Now, this is true. Wickedness will put somebody in this difficult position sooner or later. The sinner who dies in his sins and goes to hell will find out the hard way that nobody on earth or in heaven can help them. It will be too late at that time. The sinner is doomed to an eternity in hellfire. And judgment of his sin leaves him totally helpless. No deliverance exists on earth or in heaven for that person. So Eliphaz gives a long description of the trouble that the guilty verdict of sin brings upon a sinner. And this trouble is the horrible consequence of sinning. Verse 2. He goes on to say, For wrath kills a foolish man, and envy slays a simple one. In other words, for sure, resentment destroys the fool and jealousy kills the simple. Now, the words foolish and envy describe the wicked man. The words kill and slays emphasize death for the wickedness, for wickedness. What Eliphaz says here is also true, but it's his suggested accusation against Job that's wrong. Sin is truly plagued with death. Paul made that clear in Romans 6, 23. He said the wages of sin is death. But this isn't true in Job's situation. Death did not come to his family uh, because it wasn't the, the, the result of the wages of sin. Verse 3. He says, I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I crushed his dwelling place. Eliphaz says, Job, I, I've seen fools they might be successful for a while, but then sudden destruction comes upon them. 
So Eliphaz speaks of knowing the end result of sin. He's seen the wicked and he describes them as foolish, taking root. In other words, they started out to be prospering. But he wisely recognizes that their prosperity isn't real prosperity at all. So suddenly he says, I cursed his dwelling place. He recognized that the success of the sinful wasn't real success. So instead of admiring their success, he now sees the, the true character of their success. Eliphaz speaks with wisdom here. When he, said, when he said, we need to know that we shouldn't envy the prosperous, the prosperity of the wicked, because you see, they're under the curse of sin. And it says, truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. Steps, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. This was, these were Asaph's words. In Psalm 73, verses 1 through 3 and 17. Because he envied the prosperous. He thought, you know, he, I'm serving God and, and I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. And, and, and I just seem to be having nothing but trouble. He says, I look at the prosperous, and they seem to be just having a great old time. But he says, until I went into the sanctuary, and I understood where they're going to end up. Eliphaz's implied accusation towards Job is not wisdom. He implies that Job had taken root. That is, that Job became very successful and prosperous, but disaster finally caught up with him because of his sin. So Eliphaz doesn't think that Job is in a good situation, and he calls it a troublesome situation. Verse 4. <clears throat> he says, His sons are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverer. He says their children are abandoned from any help. They're far from help. They're crushed in, in court with no one to defend them. The children of the wicked really do suffer because of their parents' wickedness. And it's pretty clear what Eliphaz is saying here. Job's children were killed. They weren't in a safe place. But that's not speaking of a safe location, which they supposedly would have been in if Job had been righteous. So again, Job's implied wickedness by Eliphaz has resulted in the death of his children. That's what's implied here by Eliphaz. These weren't very comforting or helpful words concerning Job's problems. Look at verse 5. Because the hungry eat up his harvest, taking it even from the thorns, and a snare snatches their substance. The hungry eat up their harvest, even when it's protected, surrounded by prickly plants, and the thirsty desire their wealth. So this is also a rather obvious accusation by Eliphaz, that Job's problems, which involved the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, stealing his livestock. Some of the livestock was used for food, which is why the reference to hungry is mentioned here. Job really was robbed of his substance, but not because of his wickedness, like Eliphaz thinks. Verse 6. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Evil doesn't just come from out of nowhere. This is what he's telling Job. And trouble just doesn't pop up from the earth, Job. There must be a reason for it in your life. What Eliphaz says here is about what determines the misfortune or trouble of the one that sins. It's sin that determines the trouble. 
Eliphaz says that affliction and trouble don't come by chance or go, grow just naturally out of the ground. Troubles only come around when men have prepared the ground for them. That is, they've been thinking about sin. They've been enter entertaining it in their mind, and then they flesh it out. They bring it to pass. Eliphaz says that affliction and trouble just don't come from out of nowhere. You know, there's been thoughts of it, there's been entertaining of it, and now it's come to pass. So again, the implied accusation is that Job's troubles didn't just happen by chance. There had to have been some wickedness that he's been sowing. Verse 7. Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. He says people are born for trouble just as quickly as sparks fly up from a fire. Now, this verse has been used by itself oftentimes to the fact that troubles are bound to come in life no matter who you are. And in a sense, that's true. We're going to experience troubles. Every day isn't going to be a bright, sunny day, and we can all attest to that. Or it's not going to be without problems, because many days we will experience problems. But this verse is in a context about the curse on evil. We learn in the first part of the verse that troubles don't come for, any, for, for no reason. They are the result of sin. Now here in this sentence, we learn that evil determines the trouble. So when you see evil, you can pretty safely say with confidence that trouble will come just as sure as you can predict that sparks will fly upward when you stir the embers of a fire. And if you've ever had a campfire and you throw wood in it, what happens? Sparks fly everywhere. And that's, again, the point that, Job, that Eliphaz is making here. So, again, Eliphaz has basically now condemned Job. He tries to get him to show, he's trying to get Job to repent and show some sorrow for his sin. Now, Eliphaz just doesn't come out and say it directly, but it's pretty clear what he's doing. He's condemning Job for his sin. And Eliphaz is insisting that this is why, Job, you're having all of these problems in your life. You need to repent. Verse 8. But as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my sin, or my, uh, my cause. Job, he's saying, if I were you, I'd go to God and I'd present my case to God. Eliphaz tells Job, hey man, if I was in your shoes, I'd go to God and I'd give him all of my problems. So this implies that Job needs to go to God and he needs to repent of his sin. And again, it's basically a condemnation of Job. The attitude and the action of God is the basic encouragement for repentance. We know God is merciful. We know he's gracious. That should bring us to him. That should encourage us to repent. Eliphaz now refers to five things about God to encourage repentance. Beginning in verse 9, notice what he says. God, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. One of the reasons you should go to God for repentance is because of the greatness of God. He does great things, too marvelous to understand. He performs numerous miracles. So Job should repent because God is so great. And this is true. Because this greatness of God is also God's own message to Job. That's mentioned towards the end of the book. But again, the implied accusation by Eliphaz of this truth is unacceptable. Job does not need to repent because God is great, because Job's troubles are not because of sin in his life. Verse 10, here's the second reason that Job should repent. 
Verse 10. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. It speaks of God's goodness. Job, Job, God is so good, you should repent. The goodness of God should encourage us to repent. And this is a for real truth. Paul talks about this truth in Romans when he says in Romans 2, 4, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? The truth is a good one here. But again, Eliphaz's implied accusation is a bad one. Job's troubles, you know, doesn't mean that he needs to repent. Here's the third reason that Job should repent, according to Eliphaz. The grace of God, verse 11. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. God gives grace or gives prosperity to the poor and he protects those who suffer. Grace is unmerited or undeserved favor on God's part. God's grace truly encourages repentance. God lifts up those who are low. God's grace says there's hope for the sinner. The gospel makes this truth very clear. It says in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved. And once again, what Eliphaz says is right on. It's real and it's a wonderful truth. But suggesting that it fits Job's case, hey, he's all wrong. Verses 12 through 14, <clears throat> we see the fourth reason why Job should repent, the severity of God. Look at verses 12 through 14. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noontime as in the night. Eliphaz goes from the grace of God to God's severity of his judgment. Job, if you reject the grace of God, you can expect the severity of God. So the encouragement here is for Job to repent and to be morseful, or judgment could be really severe. What Eliphaz, again, is saying is right on, but the implied accusation about Job by Eliphaz is wrong. And then the fifth reason that God, that Job says, that, that Eliphaz says Job should repent is, is God's protection. Look at 15 and 16. But he saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty, and from their hand. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. So, we see in the Beatitudes, they start with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Repentance recognizes our poverty. It recognizes our need in the most important area of life, and that's the spiritual area. The encouragement of this promise is that God will guard and protect the poor. Those who are repentant, that is the poor in spirit, the poor have hope. And again, this is another good message. By the indirect accusation to Job by Eliphaz is not good. Now, Eliphaz, man, he says a lot of nice things. He says a lot of things that are right on. But it's, it's his inferred accusation of Job that makes what he says bad. A long part of Eliphaz's first speech is his viewpoint about chastisement. What he says about chastisement is right on. Eliphaz says a lot of good things, but again, the application of these truths is what makes Eliphaz, what he says, totally wrong. The problem with Eliphaz is that he implies that everything that Job's going through, all of these calamities are the result of God chastising Job. 
And that's definitely not the case. And we can see that based on chapters 1 and 2. Look at verse 17. Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chasing of the Almighty. Now, this is true. Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. He's saying, cheer up, Job. Pain can help us to grow. Chastisement will make the chastened person very happy in the end. It will correct a problem that could uh, eliminate a lot of misery. The joy from chastisement doesn't come right away, though. Now, as we all know, it hurts to be taken to the spiritual woodshed. We don't like it. But the pain will eventually turn into pleasure. Hebrews tells us about the joyous result of chastisement when it says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, and that's the thing, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So by suggesting that Job is being chastened, Eliphaz is trying to comfort Job by saying that the trouble Job is going through, Job, hey, it's only chastening. And sooner or later, it's going to be okay. It's going to result in happiness. So again, as Hebrews 11, 5 says, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Job's complaint in chapter 3 is what brought about the remark by Eliphaz. Eliphaz could easily look at Job's complaint as pouting because of the pain that Job was suffering from the chastisement. So Eliphaz counseled Job, counseled Job, Job, don't despise God's chastisement. But once again, this exhortation by Eliphaz does not apply to Job. Even though it's a right-on exhortation about chastisement, it doesn't apply to Job. When we're chastened, we must not complain. This exhortation is repeated in Proverbs 11 and 12 and Hebrews 12, 5 through 7. Proverbs 11 through 12 teaches us that divine Discipline demonstrates the love of God. It's something that his readers knew but had forgotten. And, and this is the one sad consequences of getting dull in our time in the Word of God. Verses 5 and 6 of Proverbs 3 is an exhortation, which literally means encouragement, because they forgot the Word of God. They lost their encouragement, and they were ready to give up. The fact that the Father chastens us is proof that we're maturing. And it's the means by which we can mature even more. Chastening is the evidence that the Father loves us. Now, Satan wants us to believe that the difficulties in life prove that God doesn't love us. But just the opposite is true. Sometimes God's chastening is seen in his rebukes from the word of God or from circumstances. At other times, he shows his love by punishing. It says that the Lord scourges us, which is some physical suffering, whatever the experience might be. We can be sure that his chastening hand is controlled. And this is the neat thing. God's chastening hand is controlled by his loving heart. He knows when to turn down the chastening. He knows when to turn it back up. He knows what we need and how long we need it. The Father doesn't want us to be pampered babies. He wants us to become mature adults and sons, uh, adult sons and daughters who can be trusted with the responsibilities of life. Now, all of us had a father. And if this father was faithful, he had to discipline us. Because Proverbs says that a child left to himself grows up to become a shame to his mother, to his parents. 
The point that the Holy Spirit makes is that a father chastens only his sons and daughters. You see, that proves that they're his children. We've probably all felt it sometime like spanking the neighbor's kids. <laughs> they might feel like spanking ours. But we can't. See, God proves that we're indeed his children. Hebrews 12 says, 12, 8 says, if you resist God's will, you are without chastening. Think of this. If you resist God's will and you are with chastening, that is, if God doesn't chasten you, you might not be saved. Because Hebrews 12, says, 12, 8 says, all true children of God receive his chastening. All others who say they're saved but don't get chastened are counterfeits. They're not his children. Why do good earthly fathers correct their kids? So that their children might show them reverence and respect and obey what they say. This is why the Heavenly Father corrects us. He wants us to reverence Him. He wants us to obey His will. And a child who doesn't learn how to submit to authority will never become a useful, mature adult. We see a lot of that in society today. We just saw it a couple of weeks ago. All those young kids out there looting and destroying other people's property and hurting people. No structure, no guidance. The writer of Hebrews says, Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Any of God's children who rebel against his authority, they are in danger of death. And the suggestion is that if we don't submit to God, we might not live. John tells us in 1 John 5, 16, there's a sin unto death. And as a child drifts, or as a Christian drifts from the word and backslides, the father chastens him to bring him back to the place of submission and obedience. Now, if God doesn't chasten that person, they're not truly born again. If a believer persists in, res in resisting God's will, God may allow that person's life to be taken. Rather than, allow, rather than allow his child to ruin his life further and disgrace the father's name, God might allow that person to die. God killed thousands of rebellious Jews in the wilderness, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12. Why should he spare us, period? This kind of chasing isn't his usual approach. Or he just wipes us out, or he just, you know, allows us to die because, you know, he doesn't want us to ruin our lives further and, and to disgrace his name. That's not his usual approach. But it's possible. And we'd better show him reverence and we'd better show him fear. He chastens us for our own good so that we might share in his holy character. What are the blessed results? Well, we know that no chasing at the time is pleasant. We, we don't like it when we're going through it. It's not pleasant for the father nor the child. But the benefits are profitable. They are a blessing. But the important thing is, is how God's children respond to chastening. You can despise it, or you can faint under it. Both are wrong. We should show reverence to the Father by submitting to his will. Look at verse 18. 
For he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. Even though he wounds us, he also bandages us. He may strike, but his hands also heal. The purpose of chastisement is to give, is, is to give pain before pleasure, to wound before making whole, and to hurt before healing. And we've already mentioned this truth in Hebrews chapter 12. Eliphaz, again, is right in his principle, but he's wrong in the application because Job is not being chastened by God. Verse 19. He shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you. Here, Eliphaz gives in detail some good benefits of chastisement. Now, when God chastises us, it's not meant to destroy us. Even though it might feel like it, it might seem like it when we're going through it, but God chastises us to bless us. It's for our benefit. And here in Eliphaz's speech, he lists at seven, at least seven benefits of being chastised. The benefits all involve protection for the person being chastened, and they are really great blessings. The first one, the first benefit that we read is, the, is protection from starvation. Look at verse 20a. In famine he shall redeem you from death. And then verse 22a. You shall laugh at destruction and famine. The first protection is from starvation. Famine kills. But chastisement will provide protection from, from, from fatal famine. The second protection is from the sword. Look at verse 20, the second part, verse B. And in war, from the power of the sword. So, as we all know, war kills, just like famines do. But chastisement will protect from the death of the sword. The third is the protection from harmful speech. Look at verse 21a. You shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue. All right, the word scourge means a lash or a whipping. It's like a tongue lashing or whipping from the tongue. It's, those, it's harmful speech that he will protect you from. It, the scourge of the tongue can include slander. It can include all kinds of vicious and abusive uh, talk that, that can hurt a person. The fourth benefit is protection from being scared. Look at the verse 21b. It says, and you shall not be afraid of destruction when it comes. And then verse 22b. It says, and you shall not be afraid of the beasts of the earth. So again, the protection from being scared. The removal of fear from the heart really is a great blessing because fear torments. Fear paralyzes. You know, people can have such a fear that, that they won't do anything. They, they're just paralyzed. They're afraid to go out. They're afraid. To, it's just, just a fear. That's why, again, it's a great blessing to be protected from fear. The fifth benefit is protection for serenity. Look at verse 23 and 24. For, for you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is in peace, and you shall visit your dwelling, finding nothing amiss. Chastisement brings the peaceable fruit of righteousness, Hebrews 12 tells us. Peace with the beasts of the field was a great blessing in those days. Because you see, sometimes there were so many beasts in a country that men were afraid to live in it. Verse 25, we see the sixth benefit 
That is protection for one's children. Verse 25. You shall also know that your descendants shall be many and your offspring like grass of the earth. Eliphaz thinks he's giving Job comfort here because Job has lost his children in the disasters. But he's not comforting Job. Instead, he's, he's actually accusing Job of being guilty by suggesting that, that, that Job is being chastened. And then we see the seventh benefit in verse 26, protection for one's survival. Verse 26, you shall come to the grave at a full age as a sheaf of grain ripens in its season. Eliphaz would comfort Job by promising him old age. But this is no comfort for Job. Because it includes the fact, remember that Job, Job, again, it includes the fact that Job is being chastened for his sin. So again, it's not, it's not a comfort to Job. And not only that, remember, Job wanted to die. And here he's saying, oh, God's going to give me long age and, and it's not, you know, I'm going to live a long time. He wanted to die back in chapter 3. And then closing verse 27. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear it and know for yourself. So Eliphaz now finishes his first speech, which covered chapters 4 and 5. He finishes his speech, now his first speech to Job, by saying his speech is confirmed by the facts. In other words, Job, everything that I've told you, it's been searched out. It's truth. And Eliphaz is right, but his application of it is not. In saying what he said, in saying that what he said has been confirmed by facts, Eliphaz speaks about how he searched out the truth of what he said. He says, this we have searched out. And you know, and that's a good thing to do. We need to get all of the facts before we open our mouth. You know, it's a good thing to do. We need to search out the truth, and we need to make sure that our conclusions are right. Now, Eliphaz may have searched out the truth of the principles that he made, which really are true. But Eliphaz also needed to do more, more searching about how he used these truths, because they were right on truth, but they weren't used correctly. If Eliphaz said, Hear it, Job. In other words, Job, listen to my counsel. Listen to what I'm telling you. Job is being advised by Eliphaz to listen to what I have to say. Because Eliphaz has supposedly been confirmed. What he has said has been confirmed by the searching that Eliphaz did. So Job, you need to listen to me. It's for your own good. Eliphaz arrogantly, arrogantly says that if Job would pay attention to what he has to say, it would do him good. But again, Eliphaz is dead wrong. Why? Because what he has said has implied that Job's troubles came because of Job's sin. And that Job should show remorse about his sin so that the Lord can bless him in chastisement. But again, Job's troubles aren't because of sin, but because of his holiness Job's troubles are due to his holiness. God didn't bring Job's troubles on him because there was wickedness in his life. 
So Eliphaz finishes his speech with words of assurance. Job, the same God who wounds will also heal you. Job, he'll deliver you from trouble. He'll save you from your enemies. He'll give you a long and happy life and a peaceful death, Job. Man, I've checked all of this out. And everything that I've told you is true. So listen to it and do it. Eliphaz was asking Job to make a bargain with God. Job, confess your sins, and God will restore you, restore all that you've lost. But here's the thing. If Job would have done it, it would have disgraced the Lord, and it would have justified Satan. Job wasn't about to do that. Now, Eliphaz has said a lot of good things here. But again, they didn't apply to Job's situation like Eliphaz thinks they do. Somewhere, Eliphaz's so-called comforting accusation, just basically everything that he had to say to Job, everything that he, that he said to Job, it stomped all over compassion. There was no compassion for Job. There was no sympathy for what Job was going through. If there's anything to be learned here, it will be learned through comfort and tender mercy, not rebuke and accusation. There are those times when rebuke is what's needed, but not when somebody's suffering. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word, God. And Father, I pray that we would take home some great lessons here, God. And that, Lord, that we would be more compassionate and more tender when people are suffering, God. And, Lord, that we wouldn't stomp all over compassion because we think we're right and because we think we know it all. And, Lord, we pray that we would be more like Christ and, to, Father, we'd be tender, caring, and compassionate, God. And Lord, we thank you for this time. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.